0: this morning take that back I can say with conviction this morning full-throated conviction that if you want to be misunderstood just send a text message that'll do it take the this example I got a couple of examples for us one this this gal or guy I don't know they lost their contacts you ever done that lost all your contacts you don't know who's sending you what but uh, lost all, this person lost all their contacts, and they get a message saying, I'm here for you. To which they respond, oh, thanks, I'm going through a tough time, it means so much. And sorry, I lost all my contacts. Who is this? This is your Uber driver, I'm here to pick you up. <laughs> oh. And then I found another one I thought was funny. This gal was just kind of giving her mom a hard time. She was talking with an auto insurance agent about her car. And uh, the auto insurance agent says to send her some pictures of your you know your front side and and rear view <laughs> and uh, she has to say, "Boy, you look great, Susan, but I need pictures of your vehicle." Okay? Not you, but um, anyway, texting is a funny thing, isn't it? Um, you don't you send these little short messages you don't have any." eye contact with it. There's no facial expression. You can't hear the tone of the message. Um, No emotion involved in it, really. Sometimes, I mean, if you want to, you can capitalize things. That might do it and put an exclamation point. But um, is it anger? Is it excitement when you do that? You know, texting is one of those things. It's not the best medium for communication, or making disciples, and I've learned that the hard way a couple of times. It's just not good for the relationship. If you can, do it in person. But uh, even in person, I mean, if you're serious about following Jesus, communicating the gospel, and, and making disciples, you're, you're just going to be misunderstood at times. Uh, it's, it's just the way it is. It doesn't matter how winsome you are. It doesn't matter that how, how loving you are and the tone of your voice and how, how many questions you ask and you show genuine concern. There's just going to be folks out there that the gospel, gospel goes right over their head or they take it offensively. Uh, they, they gonna, they're going to misinterpret your message, your motives, and uh, your, really, your calling in Jesus Christ to make disciples, to advance the gospel. Uh, They're not going to see the gospel as good news. They don't see that you're trying to help them. And uh, again, you've experienced that probably in your pursuit to make disciples for Jesus. Uh, People might become skeptical towards you. Maybe they reject you. They start to maybe uh, distance themselves from you after you've shared the gospel. And that can be tough. It is tough. And as witnesses for Jesus, that's what we're learning through the book of Acts. Jesus said, you you know, Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses to all the world. And um, as Jesus' witnesses, we need to learn to respond to this sort of thing, uh, being misunderstood. And uh, today, Paul's going to actually be the example for us because he's misunderstood in our passage. People misunderstand his calling in Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at today, a taste of what we're going to look at as we resume our journey in the book of Acts, chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 16. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's Bibles underneath the pews that you can, you can use and you can take home if you don't have one. But uh, as you turn there, here's just a bit of an introduction where we're at in the book of Acts, if you're just joining us this morning. Uh, today we are going to conclude... Uh, The third missionary journey. It's the third and final missionary journey. And this passage uh, really prepares us for the final section of Acts. When Paul enters Jerusalem, he's going to testify for Jesus before the Jews. And it it gets very hostile. He's going to be arrested. And then from there, he's going to be in prison in Caesarea. And then he's going to end up in Rome. So uh, this chapter, to be honest with you, it reminds me... A bit of tornado season. Um, And it's funny, because I'm preaching about it. I actually had a dream about tornadoes last night. It was messed up. But uh, uh, tornado season, right? First you get an advisory. Then you get a watch. Then you get a warning. It's here, right? So and that's basically what's going on in this passage. Uh, The warnings of persecution for Paul at Jerusalem, are progressively increasing. So let's look at the warning at Tyre first, verses 1 through 6. Uh, When we had parted from them and had set sail, uh, that's Paul leaving Miletus, leaving the Ephesian elders there. It says, we ran a straight course. Straight course means the wind is at their back, to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship... Crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, uh, the ship was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, uh, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we left and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. And so, uh, basically, Luke's just giving us uh, some travel details to start out with. He's Paul and and the eight men that are with him, including the author, Luke are on a smaller ship. They're just kind of hopping from port to port, uh, from island to island. And um, right before he left Miletus, you remember, we saw the, uh, what we might call the advisory. Uh, Paul said, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me so there's the advisory he kind of got a taste last week of what's coming down the road for him and then he sails again to cost to Rhodes, and then patara finds a larger ship uh and then sails 400 miles over to uh phoenicia actually uh the city of tyre in phoenicia and this is a long narrow strip of land just to give any idea of where he's at um it's this, long, it's this long, narrow strip of land that's northwest of Galilee, uh, the land in northern Israel. And uh, this territory was evangelized, uh, reached with the gospel, uh, back in Stephen's day, right, several years ago, 20 years ago probably. Um, it was a result of persecution that this place was reached with the gospel, at least in part or a great part, was due to the fact that Stephen had been martyred, the church was scattered, and they went north into Phoenicia and Antioch and, and and other places up north. And that's how the gospel ended up here. And that's where these disciples probably came from. In fact, some of them we know uh, were a result of the persecution that went on. So let's just take that home today as we, as we think about persecution and, and how it can we, we tend to think of it as the worst thing in the world, but God can harness it. God can use it for good. He can use it for the advancement of the gospel. And uh, Paul and the men with him, uh, they stay here in Tyre for seven days, apparently, while the ship unloads, probably reloads. And they're just they, as they hang out for these seven days, they find some Christian brethren to stay with. And it says that these brethren kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to set foot in Jerusalem. So what's that mean? Why is Paul going to the Jerusalem? If through the Spirit, the, the spirit said, uh, this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem. So the language is honestly, it's admittedly a little bit difficult here. But from the context, we know that this doesn't mean that the Spirit of God was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul's disobeying the Spirit. That's not what it means. Uh, it means that the Spirit of God revealed to them that Paul was going to be persecuted in Jerusalem. And in response to this revelation, through the Spirit... Uh, they, the disciples at Tyre, were telling him not to go out of loving concern for Paul. Uh, we know this because Paul is compelled by the Spirit. He's compelled by the Spirit to go there, and they, they understand he's going to be persecuted, and they say, tell him not to go. Um, and we're going to see basically the same thing repeated in the next few verses at the next stop. So Paul's persecution is again foretold, but his journey is not prohibited. And uh, one of the main reasons why we're given this here, why, why, why is Luke even bringing this up? you ever thought about that? I, I was thinking that through this week. I think it has to do with God's sovereignty in the advancement of the gospel. God show, God's showing us, Luke's showing us, that what happens to Paul at Jerusalem, the persecution, it's not a mistake. Paul was compelled by the Spirit. God knew this was going to happen. Things are not spiraling and out of control. They're falling into place. Uh, the, so the misunderstandings about Paul, they're not a surprise. Nothing has been a surprise throughout the book of Acts, has it? It's God, step by step, advancing the gospel. It might be a surprise to us, but Luke depicts everything as, as God being in control of redemptive history. He's emphasizing the sovereign hand of God, working all things for good, even the the persecution that takes place. And he's going to use Paul's time in prison for good. God's going to use his time in prison, in jail for years. Paul's going to be in there. He's going to be writing letters. He's going to make disciples, even from a jail cell. And uh, it reminds us, I think, of the way uh, of Jesus and the way that He went to the cross knowing exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him on the cross. And others misunderstood him. His own disciples misunderstood him. His own disciples tried to stop him. The same thing is happening with Paul. And uh, I guess I, I, I want us to take home the principle here when when we're misunderstood as witnesses for Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus, if you've ever experienced that, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I wish God hadn't prepared my heart for this message. Um, it's too personal this morning for me. But when you're misunderstood as a witness for Jesus, it's easy to want to defend yourself. It's easy to just want to, I don't know, hit someone across the head and say wake up, right? I mean, don't you don't you see what God is doing? Right? They they slander you, they call you names, they throw rocks. They don't they don't understand God's will. They don't understand God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus to make disciples. And they're going to give you a hard time. And you need to come to John's class and learn how to forgive them. Okay? <laughs> But when, you, when you're misunderstood as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to remember God is in control. God is in control. You think Paul understood that? He's getting ready to be mistreated. He's getting ready to be missed. You know, the, the injustice that takes place is going to be unreal. And he has to remember God is in control here. Not only are unbelievers going to miss under your lifestyle and your message as a follower of Jesus Christ... And, and call, maybe maybe they 're going to call you a bigot, maybe they call you a weirdo, right because you 're strange, admit it, you were strange before you came to Jesus, but now you 're really strange to the world, and you 're supposed to be. people don 't like it people don 't like righteousness, they hide from the light, some people are like that. We were like that once, but even Christians did you catch that? These are disciples, and they 're trying to stop Paul. From fulfilling his calling. Even Christians can misunderstand your calling in Jesus Christ. Jesus faced the same thing, didn't he? Remember when we were working through the Gospel of Mark and his family tried to stop him? They called him crazy. They said, Jesus is out of his mind. They didn't understand. Uh, he, he, and this is what Jesus said, no prophet's welcome in his hometown, right? They just didn't get it. Well-meaning people, even Christians, are going to have their preconcep- preconceptions about what they think God's will for your life is. You ever experienced that? We do that with other people all the time. But maybe, maybe more especially so with family members. Uh, what I'm talking about is particularly true, I think, when God calls a man or a woman into some sort of difficult ministry or situation for the gospel of Christ. I mean, a classic example being the call to be a missionary. Parents, how are you going to respond to your children when they say, Mom, Dad, I think God's calling me to the mission field? Let's say some difficult place like Nigeria, where they're hostile to the gospel. What are you going to do? Are you going to try and, and soften your child's determination to, to fulfill the will of God for their lives? You see how we can, this can be kind of a dangerous thing for us to try and have our preconceptions about what God's will is for other people's lives. How many Family members and friends have been responsible for softening a Christian's calling in Christ. We're going to see it again in the next chapter. That's why I'm bringing it up here. Uh, we need to understand God's will for us is not for us to be happy and, and pain-free all of the time. Sometimes I think we think that. It's, our calling is to follow Christ Christ. And sometimes that means hardship, doesn't it? There's a, there's a prosperity gospel out there. They call it the Word of Faith movement, where they basically you basically manipulate God to do your will. The real gospel says, I surrender my will to do God's will. He uses me, not the other way around. That means following Jesus. It isn't going to be easy. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Think about how many difficulties Paul ran into. And Paul could have said, surely this isn't the will of God. Remember how many times Paul, Paul, said, Paul could have said, you know, it's, it's just too hard. This whole following Jesus thing, it's too hard. It's, there's too much opposition. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been stoned to death. I've been, I've been in jail here, jail there. You think it ever went through his mind? Maybe this isn't God's will. I think we do that. Difficulties come up when we're following Jesus, and we think this can't be God's will, can it? You imagine how people felt about Paul too. Just just talking about maybe trying to soften someone else's uh, calling in Christ. You know, what about what about Paul? Some of the comments. Think about some of the comments he endured. Remember when he went to Antioch over in Turkey. And it says the city was polarized after he preached the gospel. Half of them embraced the gospel. The other half became just antagonistic. They followed Paul and they persecuted Paul. They chased him out of the city. The city was polarized by the gospel. Families, Jesus said, are going to be polarized by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some are going to believe, some aren't. How about the riot at Ephesus we saw a few weeks ago? You see that the city of Ephesus was in an uproar. The gospel was creating waves. Some of Paul's converts, I can imagine, died for their faith by now. People are dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you think anyone ever came up to Paul and said, Do you, don't you think that you're taking this whole Jesus and gospel thing a little too far? Paul, look around, bud. Cities are being polarized. Cities are in riot. Paul, families are being divided. People are losing their lives, Paul, Blood is being shed because of you. Because you shared the gospel with them. Think you ever heard any of those comments? Do you know what Paul understood? The most loving thing that you can do for someone is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ for them. Because eternal destinies are at stake. And the gospel, guys, it's going to make waves. Some You can't control how people respond to it. And you can't let people, with their the naysayers, with their comments, stop you from fulfilling your heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. That's what we see here today. Paul, I think we should identify with Paul when he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel Woe to me if I don't. Why? Because eternal destinies are on the line. It doesn't all depend on us, does it? But at the same time, this is what we're called to do. God calls people through the gospel. We were called through the gospel. If we don't preach the gospel, how are people going to believe? So, verse 7. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy's. And uh, after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea. And entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said... This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manassas of Cyprus, a disciple of long-standing, a disciple from the beginning, with whom we were to lodge. And we arrived in Jerusalem. The brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So right there, Paul enters Jerusalem. That's where the third missionary journey ends. And uh, we see here at Caesarea increased or intensified warning it gets even more intense paul and the eight men with them they they leave ptolemy i uh, go 30 miles south uh, of tire to ptolemaus where they run into more disciples they stay for a day and i just i just like that i love this these clues everywhere paul goes it's like they stay with some disciples next city they stay with some disciples they find some disciples they stay with them it tells you that this place has been evangelized Right? I mean, the gospel has gone out, the third mission journey, missionary journey has ended, and there are disciples everywhere. It's time to move on, right? So, um, time to take the gospel to Rome and beyond. But um, after Ptolemaeus, they travel 40 miles south to Caesarea, and Caesarea uh, Maritima, that is, not Caesarea Philippi, but Maritima, which means the city of Caesar by the sea. Now, this is a city that we are familiar with, and uh, we want to stay familiar with, because this is where Paul's going to spend two years in prison. Um, this was where Herod Agrippa uh, the first died. Remember, he, he, he died. He was eat, eaten by worms. And uh, then after that, Cornelius. This is where Peter preached to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. This was a, a city that was uh, pretty much... Purely Gentile. I mean, this is the, the Roman capital of Israel. Uh, and, you know, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they they didn't want to be caught dead in this place, basically. Uh, this was Gentile paradise. It represented everything that was wrong with Israel to the Jew. But it, it was, uh, we could say, a magnificent city in light of its uh, construction. It was like the poster child of Roman engineering right just how advanced they were with the aqueduct and they had this um, man-made harbor that reached over 300 yards out into the sea and it was made from uh, concrete hydraulic concrete I guess that hardened underwater Uh, and that technology interestingly enough when Rome was sacked basically the Roman Empire fell apart uh, they lost that technology for like hundreds of years so it's pretty advanced city for its time it's again some a place to be familiar with in the bible It comes up several times in the book of acts and again paul's going to stay here for a while behind bars but uh this was look we were looking at this like man this is your last place to turn around if you're paul uh from here uh you, you he's going to get arrested so uh it's here that we run into this familiar character philip do you remember philip uh from acts chapter 8 he was the main Character in that chapter, Philip was. Uh, this is not Philip the Apostle; it's Philip the Evangelist, and uh, he was one of the seven. Remember the seven men that were chosen to serve in, as deacons, or at least in a deacon-like position in Acts chapter six. Uh, Stephen was one of them, which is interesting because uh, Paul held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, and here Philip is one of Stephen's, uh, you know, brothers. There, one of the. The seven, and now here's Paul and Philip meeting up. Last time they might have met up would have been when Paul was holding the coats of those stoning Stephen. It's an interesting encounter when you think about it. Um, in times, Philip became a powerful witness in Samaria. He led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, and then he was snatched away and ended up uh, in Caesarea the last time we saw him. And it turns out Caesarea becomes his home. Or at least his hub for, for ministry and evangelism. And then Philip also has, this is kind of an interesting, right, mention of these, these four unmarried daughters who all have the gift of prophecy. And that's not unfamiliar to the New Testament. Uh, in the days of Acts, before the completion of the Bible, remember when you're reading through the New Testament, they didn't exactly have the New Testament. So, the New Testament, scriptures are still being written, and there was the gift of prophecy. And according to early church writings, fam, well, Philip's family, this is just neat, this is important too, but according to early church writings, Philip's family uh, appears to have migrated north up into Hierapolis, up in Turkey, in the Lycus Valley, I think that that's where Colossae is. And... Uh, their tombs were pointed out as being there in the late second century. Now we don't know where that is today, but their Philip and his family's tombs were pointed out as being there up in Turkey. And the daughters in particular were noted later on as having been highly esteemed informants on persons and events belonging to the early days of Christianity, Judean Christianity. Okay, so they were there since the beginning. And I think that explains why Luke makes passing mention of them, of these daughters and individuals like Nason. How was Nason described? A disciple of long standing, a disciple of RK from the beginning. Okay, and then he mentions who else? Uh, Philip. Philip was there in the beginning. The leaders at Jerusalem that he mentions here, James specifically. So this is Luke subtly, but intentionally indicating the trusted sources from which he gathered his information to compile the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. This is important. Where did Luke get his information? He got it from witnesses, early eyewitnesses who were there from the beginning. You know what that means? You can trust his record. You can trust Luke. You can trust Acts. Okay, because he's as he's traveling. Remember, Luke's riding running around with the Apostle Paul, and he's he's got all of his, you know, he's probably got a huge briefcase, all these papers, and he's he's taking notes, he's taking details, he's interviewing people. What happened? What happened here? What happened there? And as as he travels and he runs into these kinds of people, or while Paul is imprisoned at Caesarea for two years, Luke is going around the, the land of Judea and different places and he's collecting and organizing. Eyewitness information that ultimately crystallizes into Luke and Acts. And it didn't just crystallize, it was hard work, you know. But anyway, again, it's a little bit of a reconstruction, but it helps you understand where these books came from and that you can trust them. But after Philip's daughters are mentioned, then you see the prophet Agabus. Apparently prophets of a feather flock together. So last time we saw Agabus was in Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. Uh, when he and some other prophets they came down from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch, and he foretold a great famine. Remember that. He, so Agabus prophesied a famine in the days of Claudius, and now again he's, he's like a bad news prophet. You know, uh, he comes down, he has more bad news. Last time it was a famine; this time it's it's persecution. Paul, you're going to be arrested. He, he has this like he's kind of like an Old Testament prophet. If you're familiar with them, they had vivid uh, illustrations. They would do physical things to uh, basically make it very vivid in your mind what, what God's word was saying. So he basically takes Paul's belt, and this might have been the money belt that held, you know, the gift from the Gentile churches to the to the Jerusalem church. But uh, he predicts that Paul is going to be bound. And, and as a result of Jewish opposition, Jews won't necessarily bind him, but they're going to be the ones responsible for it. He's going to be handed over to the Gentile Roman authorities. And Agabus and the others, uh, including Luke, they try to convince Paul, just like at, at the last stop. They try to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go, Paul. And Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking My heart. I'm not only ready to be bound, I'm I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul understands this is what God has called him to do. This is what God has called him to do. And their attempts to soften his determination to follow the Lord is just heartbreaking because he loves them, right? He appreciates these people. They mean well. But Paul has a calling. Paul has a will to follow, and it's not his own. He's following God's will, and he won't be persuaded away from it. And they finally just quit trying. Did you catch that? Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go, and they just, he won't have it. And it says, they fall silent. The will of the Lord be done, is the remark You know, one might read this and mistakenly think that Paul's like actually pursuing martyrdom. That martyrdom has some sort of special merits before God. That's something to be pursued. One might think Paul has a death wish, but that's, that's not at all the case. Sometimes, remember, we've been journeying with Paul. Did Paul pursue martyrdom? If he wanted to, he could have pursued it a long time ago. Sometimes Paul, persecution flared up and Paul moved on. Sometimes he stayed. Remember Corinth? Persecution was intense. God said, nope, you're staying, Paul, and you're going to be here for a while. See, Paul was just following the Lord's lead wherever the Lord led him. He was just staying true to God's call on his life. When, when Jesus called Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, I'm gonna, I'll show him how much, suffer, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You remember that? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's going to be my witness before Jews and Gentiles and kings. And he spent a lot of time with Jews and Gentiles, and he's about to spend some time before kings. But since that happened, since Paul was... Converted on the road to Damascus. It's like he's done nothing but suffer for the gospel. I made this comment last week, but I study the life of Paul and his discipleship and his commitment, and I'm just blown away by it. I don't know about you, but it makes me think, am I even a disciple? (laughs) Because I look at what his commitment, and I just, I'm blown away. We all should be. He is a model for us. He even said that to the Ephesian elders. He used himself as a model. He's an example for us to look up to. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Sometimes it's going to be tough. He's beaten. He's jailed. He's stoned. He's misunderstood. He's falsely accused. He's not treated justly. And Paul didn't choose these things. God called him, and that calling would entail suffering for Christ's sake. And this is something in American Christianity that we just don't quite understand. But I feel like we're getting to understand it a little bit more. We can, see the, we can see it coming down the road. But we need to be prepared for it when it happens. If it does happen. Again, this isn't just Paul's story. This is Jesus' story too. I want you to capture All of the parallels that are being drawn between Paul's final journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem. Both predict it's God leading them to Jerusalem. I'm compelled by God to go to Jerusalem. Jesus and Paul, they both set their face like flint towards Jerusalem. They won't be... Persuaded. This is one last time. They know full well what's going to happen to them. And both Jesus and Paul have disciples who try to stop them out of loving concern. But in both cases, Jesus and Paul continue to choose God's will, although it isn't easy, and though there are others who don't understand it. In both cases, Paul's journey, and Jesus' story, what do we find? We find the phrase, the will of the Lord be done. It's here in Acts chapter 21. If you go back to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling with God's will in the garden, and he finally surrenders, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Countless Christians. I was reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs this week. I watched a video on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Countless Christians throughout the centuries, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians, named and unnamed, have given their lives for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Before emperors and popes, they gave their lives. Christian after Christian. Fox's book of martyrs written in the 16th century was 3,000 pages worth of names and details about how this man was martyred, this gal was martyred. They were burned. They were pinched. They were seared with iron pinchers. They were cut open and slashed. They were had salt rubbed into their wounds. They had just... They were crucified. They were crucified in an X shape. They were crucified upside down. They were crucified like Jesus. They had their brains busted out with clubs. Guys, if you have time, spend some time with Fox's Book of Martyrs. And see what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Do we have that sort of determination? It's only going to come by God's grace, by the way, but think about it. And then think about American Christianity and where we're at. And I just can't get out of bed to go to church in the morning. It's just too hard. Let's think more like disciples. It was really challenged this week. All these Christians, from Polycarp, you know, Apostle John's disciple, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to, to just a little girl in a high school standing up for God with a gun pointed in her face. Do you still believe in God? You know the shooters go after Christians? Can't remember that gal's name. Was it Rachel? when you're misunderstood as a witness for Christ and they're ready, to, whatever it is, you just you keep prioritizing the will of God. Keep prioritizing the will of God in your life. When you're misunderstood, when people shun you, when people question your motives, when they question your gospel, when people say things like, you're taking this whole discipleship thing a little bit too far, you're taking evangelism too far, and the naysayers, they start to get to you, they start to get to your emotions. What do you need to do? You prioritize the will of God. You say, the will of the Lord be done in my life. The will of the God be done. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. Paul said, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I might finish my course in the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, of the grace of God. Do you want to finish your course? Do you want to finish your race? Paul placed his calling in Christ above his own life. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about Paul's will. It wasn't about Paul's feelings. It was about God and God's eternal purposes and living for the glory of God. Not Paul's story, God's story. God's story gave meaning and purpose to Paul's story. I like to think in terms of stories. You know, there's two stories. There's my story and then there's God's. Overarching story. God has an overarching story. It's a meta-narrative, we could call it. Uh, from eternity to eternity, God has his story. It's being written. Uh, you can consider it already done. But then I have my story. My story is like a little, you know, just a little tiny blip on the radar. I mean, just barely even there. It's, my story is here and it's gone. And if I want my story to matter forever, my story has to be connected to God's story. Only then will my story last forever and have meaning and significance. Live or die, our stories can be part of something that's going to matter forever. And like Paul, guys, we need to prioritize this heavenward call. Sometimes we hear this word call. And, uh, or calling. and we think that it, it only refers to pastors and, and missionaries. And while I do believe there's a certain call to vocational ministry, I wouldn't doubt that. But in a wide sense, every believer in Jesus Christ has been called. We've all been called. To be called means to be summoned. It means to be appointed. Have you ever been summoned before? Anybody, anybody ever got the call it reminds me of uh, the call to war. You've been drafted. You get the call. Got to go. I have a new mission. I have a new purpose. As believers in Jesus Christ, we've all received the phone call from heaven. It's a heavenward call. We've all been called to a new, mer- a new mission, a new purpose. Romans one six through seven says. You are the called of Jesus Christ, called as saints, set apart ones. You're different. Uh, you're not like the world. You're to be like Jesus. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, To walk worthy of your calling with which you've been called. If you want to know what a worthy walk, walking worthy of your calling looks like, just read. The rest of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, it means walking by faith in Christ. It means conducting yourself with integrity, being like Jesus, having a certain fortitude in the spiritual war, focusing on your heavenward call, putting off the old man, the sin, and then putting on the new man in Christ Jesus. And just That's what it looks like to walk in light of your heavenward call. You're representing Jesus to the world making disciples advancing the gospel and we might think of calling in a narrow sense Paul said he was called to be an apostle remember that he was called to be an apostle I was called to be a pastor you might be called to some other ministry in the church or function in the church Uh, maybe it's it's the nursery maybe you're called to uh, greet people when they walk in the door Maybe you're called to be a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're called to uh, be a mechanic or a business owner. Whatever you do, you're going to do it for the glory of God as part of your heavenward calling. You see, these are all just platforms through and from which whatever you do, it matters. It's it's your platform from and through which you carry out or fulfill your heavenward call. Make sense? It's important we understand what our calling is, our heavenly calling to represent Jesus, advance the gospel, make disciples for the glory of God, no matter where we're at in life. We can do that. We can do that. And uh, when people, again, they, they throw stones, they call names, they try to soften your call to discipleship, or your own sin nature tries to soften your call to discipleship. And you try to justify not sharing the gospel with people, or whatever it is. Try to blend in with the world, right? Remember your heavenly calling when that happens. Remember your heavenly calling. We're called to be different. We're called to stand out. We're called to be a light in the darkness. You're called as saints, chosen ones, set apart for the glory of God. The recent passing of my friend uh, Will he was a classmate and he was a friend he had a had a wife and kids just like me and uh, I guess I've been thinking a lot about his life and how he finished his race in children's ministry and I've been thinking why him and why not me And I've been also thinking about a sermon I preached last year about this time. It was about a, it was in December, but it was called Life is a Gift. Remember that? I can't get those words out of my head. Life is a gift, and guys, we only get one chance at this. And I, I don't know about you, but I want to get to the end of my life like a runner in a race, just going full bore, Given it their all, not looking back. Pursuing the heavenward call in Christ Jesus. And I hope you're with me in that. And so as we as we come to the communion table this morning, let's repent. <laughs> Can I even use that word in American Christianity? Let's repent. Let's repent of our, our sloth, our laziness, our excuses, to, to live for other things, to, to put off making disciples. Let's just take some time uh, just to examine our hearts and the different ways that maybe the Spirit of God's revealed to you. Uh, just, ways you need to get right with God. So let's just quiet our hearts and minds and examine ourselves and just have a moment of consecration and repentance, rededication.